You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. You gotta love how they categorize rockets. Small, medium lift, heavy, and super heavy. Quite self-explanatory, really. Anyone who has seen a rocket launch will tell you that they're all amazing to see. But there's something about 33 rocket engines ignited all at once that has us space nerds in a tizzy. Super heavy starship. Wow. Just wow. Today is November 20th, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T-Minus. SpaceX's Starship launched for its second test flight. Ursa Major unveils a new solid rocket motor. Blackshark.ai closes an oversubscribed Series A funding round. And our guest today is Princeton University researcher and educator Mike Galvin. Let's take a look at our Intel briefing for this Monday. And we couldn't start our intelligence briefing today without mentioning Starship, of course. The most powerful rocket ever flown. Took off without a hitch. Not an easy feat if you remember what happened back in April. Water deluge system, successful. Pad seams intact, check. On to separation, and again, success. And then things went a little awry. The booster dropped and for a quick second seemed to be heading back as planned. But then, Rudd, <laughs> that's a rapid unplanned disassembly. Not the end of the flight, though, and not the end of the road at all for launch. Starship flew for more than seven minutes before it lost connection with the control room. Thank goodness for the success of the flight termination system, which automatically deployed. Yep, so that's two Rudds, but don't despair. There were so many milestones that it did reach that SpaceX is hailing the test flight number two 
as an overall success. It's a sentiment that NASA Administrator Bill Nelson agrees with, saying, Spaceflight is a bold adventure demanding a can-do spirit and daring innovation. Today's test is an opportunity to learn, then fly again. Cue the Federal Aviation Administration, who are quick to release the following statement. A mishap occurred during the SpaceX Starship OFT-2 launch from Boca Chica, Texas on Saturday, November 18th. The anomaly resulted in the loss of the vehicle. No injuries or public property damage have been reported. The FAA, as you might expect, will be involved in every step of the mishap investigation process and must approve the final mishap report, including any corrective actions. A return to flight of the Starship Super Heavy Vehicle is based on the FAA determining that any system, process, or procedure related to the mishap does not affect public safety. You gotta love those safety nerds. (laughs) It may be a little while until we see the Super Heavy back in action, but I think the folks at SpaceX are patting themselves on the back and are back in the workshops completing the next version as we speak in hopes that flight number three is ready ahead of the conclusion of that FAA investigation. And until then, we will return to our normal state of anticipation for the next Starship flight. And speaking of SpaceX and NASA, the agency's Assistant Deputy Associate Administrator in NASA's Moon to Mars program office said that SpaceX will have to perform Starship launches from both its current pad in Texas and one it is constructing at the Kennedy Space Center in order to send a lander to the moon for Artemis III. Lakeisha Hawkins also said that the use of the vehicle for Artemis lunar landings will require, and I quote, in the high teens of launches, a much higher number than what the company's leadership has previously claimed. After Saturday's Starship test flight, all numbers and deadlines remain up in the air for future Artemis missions. After all, a lot depends on when the FAA mishap investigation concludes, allowing SpaceX to return Starship to regular test flights. And speaking of SpaceX and launch cadence, the company's Falcon 9 carried another 22 Starlink satellites to low-Earth orbit from California this morning. It was the 55th dedicated Starlink delivery mission of the year. Even a Starship mishap does not cause a ripple to the company's ability to get into space regularly. But as we mentioned last week, with the good comes the bad with SpaceX. The Reuters report on worker injuries at SpaceX has spurred U.S. lawmakers to urge further scrutiny. California Representative Zoe Lofgren, the top Democrat on the House of Representatives Science, Space, and Technology Committee, said the report's findings were, quote, deeply concerning and must be taken very seriously. The committee oversees NASA's budget and the activities of the agency's contractors. NASA has paid SpaceX $11.8 billion to date as a private space contractor. No news yet on whether that report will cause delays to their launch calendar, but I'm sure we'll know more after this week's break. Now on to something that isn't SpaceX-related— Rocket motor company Ursa Major has released a new solid rocket motor, or SRM, that they're calling Lynx. Ursa Major says Lynx offers a faster, more affordable process, leveraging 3D printing to manufacture multiple motors that promise to outperform legacy systems. Ursa Major founder and CEO Joe Larienti said in the press release that Lynx meets the defense industry's need for a faster, cheaper, scalable, and flexible production process 
that results in better-performing solid rocket motors. We've adapted our extensive experience in additive manufacturing, materials development, and propulsion production to the most pressing problems that face the SRM industry. The result is an adaptable manufacturing process that is designed to mass-produce multiple systems, rapidly switching from one model to another, producing reliable SRMs quickly and at scale, while leaving room to collaborate across the industry on energetics. And you can hear more about Ursa Major by listening back to episode 112 of our show that featured a chat with the company's co-founder and EVP of product engineering, Bill Murray. We've included a link to that episode in our show notes for you. AI geospatial intelligence company Blackshark.ai closed an oversubscribed Series A funding round. After an extension, the company raised a total of $35 million to support its 3D mapping geospatial intelligence capabilities. Blackshark.ai's geospatial platform extracts insights about the planet's infrastructure from current satellite and aerial imagery via machine learning at global scale. The Austria-based company says the funding will be allocated to support strategic technology developments and to bolster Blackshark.ai's sales and marketing activities. NASA has reportedly told the UK government that a British astronaut could walk on the moon as early as 2025. Michelle Donnellan, the UK science secretary, said it was, quote, only a matter of time until we get a British person on the moon. The announcement suggests that NASA is considering international partners for its first manned mission to the moon since 1972. Artemis III, after all, is tentatively scheduled for launch in 2025, although NASA has already admitted that it's likely to slip to 2026. The China Manned Space Agency has announced four missions to the Tiangong Space Station in 2024. The agency announced that the Tianzhou 7 cargo spacecraft is out of the factory and has been transported to its launch site in South China's Hainan province and is due to launch the first resupply mission to the station early next year. A second resupply mission was also announced, along with two manned missions to the Chinese space station expected in the 12-month period. The United Arab Emirates is working to grow its space sector. The UAE has established an economic zone, which has already attracted 14 companies, with 10 of them owned by Emirati nationals. These space startups offer critical services, including satellite-based wildlife tracking and solutions for data center security. The UAE Space Agency says it is committed to fostering a robust private sector within its space industry to ensure that space activities contribute significantly to the national economy. And that concludes our briefing for today. We have included links to further reading on all the headlines we've mentioned in our show notes. And as always, we've included a few extras for you. One's on Europe's space program playing catch-up. A piece on why space-based weather monitoring is crucial for the military. And a third one on Mr. Musk again and his future Mars colony, providing a base for asteroid miners. Hmm. They're all at space.n2k.com, and just click on this podcast title. Hey, T-Minus crew. Every Monday, we produce a written intelligence roundup. It's called Signals and Space. So if you happen to miss any T-Minus episodes, this strategic intelligence product will get you up to speed in the fastest way possible. 
It's all Signal, no noise. You can sign up for Signals in Space in our show notes or at space.n2k.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Our guest today is Princeton University researcher and educator Mike Galvin. And I caught up with Mike at the Main Space Conference earlier this month to discuss his STEM outreach program with MaxIQ. I'm a half research engineer, half educator at Princeton University. Um, on the research side, I do um, mechanical design for more like NASA flagship missions, um, spaceflight hardware, instrumentation, um, different space hardware for like more flagship class missions. And then on the teaching side, I'm the principal investigator for our um, student CubeSat group. We're interested in all kinds of nanosatellites, but um, we're primarily a CubeSat group okay. helping our undergrads design real satellites and real spacecraft. They're tiny, um, but they're real spacecraft to go into real orbits and do real missions. And on undergraduate level, that's amazing to have that opportunity. That's right. It's, yeah. it's I mean, we're at, we're at this weird point in time where it has become quite accessible for student groups to reasonably expect that they can design, build, and launch a real spacecraft into orbit um, in a few years, usually. Amazing. But uh, that's, you know, it's a crazy thing to think about, that students can launch spacecraft now. Yeah, admittedly, that, that blows my mind a little bit. So, yeah, tell me about uh, how you've been working with MaxIQ to make this happen. Um, so we first started collaborating with MaxIQ mm -hmm. when we were participants in the ThinSat program which was um, a STEM launch program for schools run out of uh, Virginia. Mm. It was the Virginia Space Grant. Um, and uh, MaxIQ provided a bunch of these electronics sensor kits, clicked together, no soldering um, sensor kits that could integrate into small slice of bread sized satellites. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how we got our Princeton's first student satellites into orbit. We, we launched two ThinSats um, into a low Earth orbit for about a week. And these kits are kind of the, um, the easy button option to help schools get their first project into orbit. Uh, because they have spaceflight heritage, they've survived space, they've survived orbit. They're really easy to work with and click together without doing much soldering. And they provide a really nice opportunity to learn coding and software engineering 
um, for programming readout software to read out the different sensor values that you're interested in on orbit. So what kind of uh, tests and what kind of sensors are students generally using? Like, what are they doing? Um, there's a variety of sensors. The whole ecosystem of sensors, um, but maybe the core ones are like an inertial measurement unit, mm -hmm. which is a suite of accelerometers and gyroscopes and magnetometers mm -hmm. to sort of do sensor fusion to figure out your orientation in orbit and your pointing mm -hmm. and your accelerations. Um, there's light sensors, there's UV sensors, there's IR sensors, there's imagers. There are weather sensors, so you can measure pressure drop during ascent. Um, you, that can work as an indirect um, altimeter. Um, so there's a lot of different sensors. But um, my student group is mostly mechanical engineers. So we're in the mechanical engineering department. And so we're less interested in the electronics and the coding. And we're more interested in the mechanical packaging that can package and batch these kits um, into immediately launchable form factors mm. and platforms. So we're, we're less interested in getting the chips on orbit than we are in getting our mechanics Understood. on orbit. Yeah. And we've been trying to find all different uh, reliable ways to get, you know, batched schools, like a bunch of schools, into space at once for the first time. Mm. And um, one of the best ideas we had is to package these kits, in a, to batch these kits into a 1U CubeSat, which is the original CubeSat, standard size 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter cube. And we can replace the usual solar panel uh, panels with these kits um, because we're interested in ultra short missions um, on the one week time scale where they burn up within a week. They don't clutter low Earth orbit. They provide no orbital debris. But very important full end to end experience of designing uh, space qualified hardware and downlinking data from dozens of orbits in the span of a week. Proving survivability mm -hmm. in orbit, and and even operating your satellite from the ground, um, you get all of that in a week, and you have to survive a launch, which is challenging in itself. Absolutely. But we're not cluttering up low Earth orbit. We so the point of that is we don't need to be collecting a lot of power to survive a week. We yeah. can charge a big battery, and we can power all the kits for a week um, without much solar collection. So we can. Repanel the whole CubeSat with a bunch of batched school kits. Hmm. Uh, but even this is quite risky because getting a one new CubeSat to survive orbit and downlink reliably it's tough. is still a crapshoot yeah, uh, yeah. these days for schools. So we started thinking about what's even simpler, what's an easier way to get all these kits in space in a real orbit so we can have a real educational space program and it's not just a ground program. Mm -hmm. And so that's where this project fits in. Okay. We, we try to figure out what's the most reliable, frequent ride to space. And that is, at the moment, as long as we can convince Congress to keep the International Space Station in orbit for a few more years, resupply shuttles back and forth to the International Space Station is the most reliable game in town yes. for getting frequent access to low Earth orbit. And um, there are some launch and experiment integrators for the International Space Station. One of the oldest and most successful ones is NanoRacks. Mm -hmm. yep. um, NanoRacks makes these um, nanode uh, drawer units that can package um, 
what they call nano labs, which are basically just off the shelf boxes from them yeah. that provide power and data uh, links. And um, basically the, the nano labs are um, pre-qualified for launch. So as long as you can responsibly fit something into the box and seal it up, it's considered safe for launch and you're ready to go. Mm. So we took um, some of the Max IQ kits and we shrunk them down just a few millimeters to the point that they could slide um, right into the nano lab. And um, we figured out how to stack 10 to 20 kits in one nano lab um, and break them out to route them out to power and signal lines yep. um, to the nanode. And um, we can launch them. They launch um, typically uh, with a supply mission or even with the astronaut shuttles. Um, they get a very gentle ride up to LEO. They're usually packed in like quasi bubble wrap. Um, so they don't suffer a very violent launch. Mm. Um, the nano drawer um, gets slid into these racks that they already have pre-existing, dozens of these racks already pre-existing in the ISS modules, and they can operate unattended for months at a time. Mm. Um, we are interested in just simply asking um, the astronauts to reboot them mm. every few weeks, just in case anything latches up, we can make sure all the schools stay alive and get some data because we'll just reboot them a few times. And then after a few months of data collection, um, each school has their own flight computer. And so we're not using a single flight computer. Each school in the stack has their own flight computer. They have to write their own software for their own mission to read out which sensors they're interested in at the frequency that they're interested in. And while they're using off-the-shelf kits, um, they get to send a little piece of themselves to space in the fact that it's their own custom handwritten yeah. software. Yeah. And what we're really excited about, that another angle of the ISS um, platform is after a few months of data collection, we can actually retrieve the hardware. It can come back down on one of the astronaut shuttles and we can send the kits back to the different schools. And I mean, this is just my personal idea is we can hand out uh, individual chips to as awards yeah. to the best students or the best student groups participating in our STEM programs. And then everybody gets to take home, uh, you know, a little chip that went to real low Earth orbit, was handled by the real ISS astronauts. That's amazing. And they get that as a souvenir of the STEM program. And the whole goal here is how do we do a launch every school year? Mm. We start a curriculum at the beginning of the school year. We teach the electronics kits. We teach, um, we teach space qualification, we teach design for launch, design for space, and we get them through, um, teach them coding. Teach and again, them. these are undergrads, right? Undergrads. A lot of high schools are yeah, using yeah. these kits. Wow. In particular here in Maine, they've rolled out these kits to a bunch of high schools who are having a great experience with them. And they're totally capable of learning um, Arduino code, C code, Python language mm -hmm. um, to program these kits. And um, the, we, we found that the real motivational thing is to roll out the curriculum, but also have the carrot of a guaranteed launch yeah. at the end of the school year, reliably, every year. Yeah. And that's sort of the holy grail we're going for with this ISS framework.
We'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Welcome back. And do you remember some months ago, we told you about the naming competition for the upcoming Australian lunar rover? The competition was open to all suggestions from the start of September through about the end of October. And yeah, I bet there were a bunch of Rover McRover faces in the list. Be honest, how many of you wrote that one in? Well, as of today, the short list of four names picked of the over 8,000 submitted is out. Sorry to say, Rover McRoverface wasn't one of them. Yeah, I know, big bummer. But the top four contenders are these. Number one, Kuleman. Capturing the essence of our indigenous heritage and connection to the land, a Kuleman is a multi-purpose, sustainable tool used for gathering and carrying. It symbolizes the balance between utility and respect for the environment, mirroring our approach to space exploration. Number two, Kakira. Translated from the Kaurna region in Adelaide, Kakira means moon and is a tribute to the history of Australia, just as the rover is about the future of this country. The rover is very important to lunar expeditions and is a big step for Australia. Number three, mateship. (laughs) From the spirit of the Anzacs to your mate at the local footy club, it's a crucial part of the Australian culture. I apologize for reading this in an American accent. I'm really not selling it, but just pretend that I'm reading it as an Australian. <laughs> Whether you're young or old, live in the city or in the outback, we all possess this indescribable trait. Let's say good day, mate, to New Horizons and the lunar surface. And number four, Rover. <laughs> Our lunar rover deserves to be named after something iconically Australian, reflecting the Aussie spirit as we launch into this new endeavor. A kangaroo is part of the Australian coat of arms, and it's time for Australian science to take the next leap all the way up into space. (laughs) Okay, sorry, everybody. What's your favorite? Personally, I'm kind of partial to Kakira, but Ruver definitely has some fans pulling for it here at (laughs) T-minus. Whatever your pref, you've only got until December 1st to vote, and we'll put the voting link in the show notes for you. And we'll find out the winning name for the Australian Lunar Rover on December 6th. That's it for T-minus for November 20th, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.ntuk.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-Minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, from the Fortune 500 
to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. <laughs>